Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Good evening, everyone. It is That Wims Guy here for another episode. And this one is going to be a bit off of our beaten path uh, because it's not going to deal with firearms training or the evolution of, of firearms training. It's going to deal with a uh, rather sensitive topic. Uh, Steve Moses brought the idea uh, forward to me and our, and our guest tonight, and it is an important topic, and we're going to divert from our normal um, normal content to have this. I also would like to say that this is sort of a sister episode to one that was on Brian Eatrich's show, the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. Uh, it's either Off-Duty, On-Duty, or On-Duty, Off-Duty. I can never remember which one. Uh, in which the Steve and Sherry were both on there. So I will put a link to that episode in the show notes for this one so that people listen to this one can also get to that one if they're of interest. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to go Steve, if you would uh, introduce yourself and kind of set the stage for tonight. Well, my name is Steve Moses. Uh, I've been a firearms trainer for almost 30 years, uh, former law enforcement have uh, multiple uh, farm uh, and other defensive tactic, defensive tactics instructor certifications. Uh, I'm licensed in the state of Texas to both uh, can, uh, do personal protection or executive protection. I'm also licensed as a personal protection uh, officer instructor. Uh, I work for the Farm Trainers Association as a content contributor, and I do customer support for them as well. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is uh, kind of, since I've started writing content for FTA, also wrote content for CCW Safe, is bring topics of interest to concealed carriers or armed homeowners or anybody that's really kind of concerned about personal protection, whether it's for themselves or their families or both. So I kind of keep my, my ear to the ground looking for topics. Uh, I met Sherry uh, last January at a bruncheon. It was called the Better Beginnings Brunch. Uh, it was set up for the benefit of Cross Timbers Family Services in Stephenville, Texas. Uh, Cross Timbers Family Services, uh, they are a, a professional organization, nonprofit that ministers to victims of sex trafficking, sexual assault, domestic violence, and other you know, criminal acts of that nature, provide a lot of support uh, for the victims of that, both men and women, largely women. Uh, my wife is uh, the financial director over there. So I'm somewhat, you know, uh, aware of what they're doing over there and we try to support them. Well, at this brunch that I be, uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, they did a panel. Sherry was a member of that panel on sex trafficking and uh, being a, you know, father and a grandfather uh, you know, this is something that, okay, I, I need to, you know, be aware of it. And at the end, I became very, very concerned about what I heard when I realized that maybe some people that I thought were not necessarily at risk were far more at risk than I had originally thought. And I think that most people think. Uh, to that end, I got with Sherry, and I think I mentioned to you earlier that I badger her. I badgered her to appear <laughs> on a podcast 
uh, with myself and Brian Eastridge, where we covered the, uh, you know, the crime of sex trafficking in, in pretty good detail. Uh, once I got that out, I thought maybe I'd like to tackle the subject of sexual assault. I think that's actually more common in the area that Sherry and I are located in than sex trafficking. And uh, when I started thinking about it and I started actually counting the number of females I know that have actually been victims themselves of sexual assault, I was kind of like, oh my God, that is a lot. And more and more we're hearing of, you know, mostly men, uh, women sometimes are involved committing some heinous acts. And I think, you know what, I think it's real important to kind of get that message out there. Uh, I've also become a little bit more involved in doing some women only classes. Uh, I was a presenter at the uh, Girl to Gun National Conference for the last two years. And as I work with some of those women and start to know them, I kind of dial into some of the things that they're concerned about, not only for themselves, but for their children, their grandchildren. I thought, you know what, uh, sex, sexual assault is a topic that we really need to have a little bit better working knowledge of. And uh, we might just be able to get this message out to people that maybe will cause them to make some decisions that will either lessen uh, the chances that they are the victim of a sexual assault or pick up on something that's just not right and take some action that allows them to get away before it's actually initiated or in some instances, especially when it comes to concealed carriers, uh, maybe buy them some time and opportunity where they can more effectively defend themselves. All right, sure. Hi, um, I retired out of Fort Worth Police Department after 28 years. I, did, uh, I didn't move around a lot. I did 14 years in patrol and I did 14 years in sex crimes and human trafficking. Eight of those years, I was a detective, and six of those years, I supervised the detectives. And uh, then I retired and came out to Tarleton, so I'm out in Erath County now. Uh, I've stayed because the DA's office is great. The officers out at Tarleton are some of the best. We have retired Houston, Dallas, Arlington, Odessa a retired Marine, seven Fort Worth retired officers are out here. So we have about 500 years experience in the building. So when the students come in for help, we know how to help them. Okay. Um, give kind of a breakdown of what would actually be considered sexual assault. And for the audience, please understand, be kind of a general definition because every state's got their own wording and what, what will constitute a particular crime true. The Texas Penal Code defines sexual assault or rape as any non-consensual unwanted sexual contact that's compelled against another person that involves penetration and where the perpetrator knew and or intended to cause that harm. There are other crimes that cover other types of sex-related offenses, mm -hmm. but they it doesn't mean there isn't a crime if there's no penetration. It just is generally going to be a different law. There's indecent assault, mm -hmm. indecent exposure, and a lot of other titles, but rape does require the actual penetration of a sexual nature. Okay. In Texas law, can a male be raped? Absolutely. So that's one of the, the idiosyncrasies of state laws in Georgia. A male may not be raped under our law. There's a different crime that we covered. It's just not called rape. 
it would be a sexual battery. Uh, rape is specifically fined as you know the woman being being a victim. It's just it's it's one of those odd things. We got fifty states, fifty different ways of doing things. Rape is rape is rape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was real interesting was I always just kind of thought of a rapist is a rapist is a rapist, but after talking to Sherry, uh, I learned that there are like maybe five different types of rapists. I actually wrote it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was afraid I'd forget them. Uh, lack of consent rape, uh, acquaintance rape, date rape, stranger rape, and serial rape. And uh, I bet Sherry can probably elaborate on what the differences are on those uh, different types. Uh, lack of consent is, is a case by case. And those type of cases, words are the factor. And because of the words and words being the only factor, uh, those are definitely a case by case. So, so we really could do a whole podcast on lack of consent. So today we'll kind of concentrate on the acquaintance, date rape, stranger rape, and serial rape. Uh, and don't get caught up on those labels. The only thing those labels do for us is, is let us know how the rapist selected his victim. Uh, date rape's actually not a legal term, and whoever coined that phrase did a grave disservice to those victims because if you stop somebody out on the street and ask them what date rape was, seven, maybe eight out of ten of those people will say something like, well, he, he was getting back for the dinner he paid for or for that $200 bottle, bottle of wine he bought her, and, and that's not the case. Uh, they are all defined by the factor that compels the rape. So the force, the, the weapon, the gun, rope, knife, the threats, the strong arm of the bat. A date rape victim, an acquaintance victim can be just as stabbed, just as forced, just as held at gunpoint, and just as threatened. The label really doesn't define the compelling factor or the force that's used. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, so how would you define it? Uh, the the uh, date rape, it, it's the same mm-hmm. force. It, it just yeah. tells you how the victim was selected. Did he take her out to dinner first? Yeah. Did he yeah. uh, lunge at her in a stairwell? The force is the same. So if you don't have the compelling factor or the force, then you don't have a rape, no matter how the rapist selected Mm -hmm. his victim. Uh, There are are factors that go into those. Um, The stranger rapist, the real live guy jumping out of Mm -hmm. the bushes that everyone fears the stranger rapist tends to select the victims who are alone that that's the victim he tends to to try to rape the serial rapist selects his victims with some sort of commonality uh, a defining characteristic like in fort worth we had Mm -hmm. a serial rapist who raped uh girls with black hair who parted their hair down the middle who were five, two and shorter and thin build. He had a very, he had a very specific reason, but he had a very specific victim. And so a serial rapist will, will pick a characteristic where a stranger rapist will pick his victim by her being alone. That's what he tends to look for. And, and nothing is Mm -hmm. in, in the criminal 
uh, element is absolute. So we can generally talk about what almost always works, never always. Uh, and we can talk about most cases. Uh, seven out of 10 is usually the stat number that I use. If seven out of 10 of my rapists say one thing or seven out of 10 of my victims say another, that's generally what I go with. Um, a, a date rape, in one date rape case we had, he, he accompanied her home to her home. When she unlocked the door, he bum rushed her in and stabbed her with a knife that he had all through the date. So does it make sense that the date, there is no such thing as really date rape. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, in another stranger rape case, he followed her home from a bar and, and kicked in her door. That's a very prevalent factor is somebody coming up when you're unlocking your door and, and bum rushing you in. Uh, I see that a lot. Do you have any kind of statistical breakdown on you know, the percentages of which, yeah, how many acquaintance or date rapes versus how many stranger rapes versus how many serial? Serial rapists are, are the most rare. Uh, mm -hmm. Stranger rapes are right by that. Uh, date rape and acquaintance rape are more prevalent because the rapist has mm -hmm. easier access to these victims. So that alone makes, but a rapist is a rapist. He, he will do whatever it takes to meet his goal. And his goal is to rape someone. And that's what's interesting about these crimes is human trafficking is motivated by money. Sexual assault is motivated by hate, power, and control. And what a lot of people don't realize is sexual assault is not motivated by sex. Uh, very early in my, my career, I interviewed uh, a rapist and uh, he had forced uh, a woman uh, by bodily force. He was a former Marine and, mm -hmm. uh, and he raped her and I was sitting three feet from him. And I said, Michael, you can go to any bar in this city and get willing sex. Why did you have to harm her? Why'd you have to hurt her? Why did you have to force her? And he said, ma'am, it's not about sex. It's about hate. I hated my mother and I never thought that I could hate anyone more. And then I married it. So very early in my career, I realized that rape mm -hmm. is not about sex. Well, uh, did you uh, tell me at one time that a lot of date rape and acquaintance rape has in common a sense of entitlement by uh, the rapist? That, that's a motivating factor, sure. Uh, but and, and rape can be motivated by power, hate, control, and, and a sense of entitlement uh, or arrogance, but it isn't motivated by sex itself. You know, one of the things I always thought about date rape was I always kind of thought it was something where two people had at least uh, consented to be with each other for at least a short period of time. Uh, so it always kind of struck me as, uh, okay, well, it just seemed like maybe the guy just forced himself upon the, the female. It was not necessarily going to be that violent, but something that I believe that I discovered, Sherry, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in many instances, even date rapes can be just horribly violent. 
Well, they're just as violent. If you took the title out, you would end up with rape. So whatever force or compelling factor he used defines the rape, not the title. Uh, date rape, acquaintance rape, those actually aren't legal terms. They're just terms that we use. But yeah, the, more, actually, the more, I'm sorry. Yeah, the more to differentiate between the people knew each other versus it was a stranger abducting someone off the street. Right, right. Uh, yes, everyone has to fear the serial rapist. The date rapist just selects his victim by however you would at, at church or school or uh, online, however he, that's just an easy way for him to select his victim. That's all. It, it's still motivated by the exact same thing, power, hate, and control. It doesn't matter how he selects them it, from a legal standpoint. The force he uses is the force he uses. And he, a, a date rape victim can be held at gunpoint and stabbed as easily as the stranger or the serial. The stranger rapes, the cases we saw a lot with stranger are, that's the bar scenario. He, he sees somebody, picks someone out of the bar and follows her home. That's a stranger type thing. Acquaintances where he may talk to her for 30 minutes at a party. Uh, they're not total strangers, but they have no relationship. And then date is where they went on a date or some type of, of consensual beginning to that incident. Uh, that, that's really why you use those titles. It just, it, as a detective, it gave me the clue of how did this one find her? How did he pick her out? And then I would say, okay, based on the facts, it's acquaintance, date, serial, or stranger. And it just gives us different clues to look for in solving the case and proving it up. That's all it does. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the amount of force. Speaking of proving, I think now would be a good time to explain to the audience what it means, what, what, what the term elements of a crime is, and then what all you have to prove when you're trying to prove a rape case. You have to prove that, that he intended or knew, and that, that's a pretty easy one to prove. And the elements mm -hmm. that you have to prove are she has to have felt compelled by some way to to uh, the rape. He has to use force or a compelling factor. She can't just stare at ceiling tiles and have a migraine and say that he knew I didn't wanna have sex and he did it anyway. Those are not elements of a crime. Elements of a crime are, you have to look at the compelling factor. What did he do or say to cause her to believe that she had no choice? And those are the elements of the crime. What is that factor or factors that he used? All right, well, let's get even a little bit more elementary than that uh, for the audience. When we talk about elements of a crime, the legislature, no matter which state it is, or the federal government, when they create a law, nothing's illegal until there's a law that says it's illegal. Uh, the actual crime will be defined and, and part of that definition uh, will be listed elements and you must satisfy all of those elements in order to have that crime. You know, it's commonly we'll, we'll get people, you need to go arrest that person for, and they just make some title up uh, out of thin air. 
whatever. It's like, okay, I'll hand you my code book. And if you can find that in there, I'll be happy to go arrest them. And that's just not how it works. We don't get just to say that person is doing something we don't like or we think should be wrong. So we're going to arrest them for that. They must meet a the definition and the elements of a law that has been specified by the respective legislature. And, you know, sometimes that crimes are broken down into degrees. Uh, very, if you've been educated by Hollywood, you've probably heard of first degree murder, second degree murder, et cetera. That's not true in every case. Like in my state of Georgia, we have murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. There's no degrees, except for there's a very special, specific thing for a second degree. Um, but we don't have so-called first degree murder. We have no attempted murder statute in Georgia law. We have a general criminal attempt statute that just basically says if you attempt to commit any crime, then you're charged under the, the uh, criminal attempt. So typically most uh, what would be basically an attempted murder gets prosecuted as an aggravated assault because those elements then are urged to prosecute. Um, you know, when it gets into the various sexual assaults, you know, rape is what we think of more commonly, but there are other forms of sexual assault. We have to prove each and every specified element of that crime. And if there's a hang up on any one of the elements, it makes it hard to prove that crime and get a conviction in court. And I'll throw it back to you too. Yeah, you have to follow the evidence. You have to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that it was unwanted. And, uh, and that's why the lack of consent cases are so difficult and they're case by case. But in, in the other types of rape, uh, you'll have injury, you'll have the force used, you'll have possibly witnesses, you'll have, I always tell my victims, 90% of my case evidence comes from my victim. She's going to come in and tell me what happened, what that factor was, what the force was used and why she felt like she had no choice. Uh, and that's so important because you have to meet that element of, of rape, which is how did he force her to uh, submit? And that is the golden ticket to a rape case is what did he do? What did he say? What did he use? What did he threaten her with? What weapon did he have? Uh, and it can be a lot of different factors. Uh, but yes, you do have to prove the element of, of a compelling factor. And a compelling factor can be too intoxicated to consent. And, and we can get into that mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, it, it's not a crime the way the law is written to have sex with a drunk girl. It's a crime to have sex with her if she shows a visible, recognizable sign of incapacitation. If, if, it, if she says, I'm too drunk, it can be something that simple. I'm too drunk for this. If she's falling down, throwing up, unconscious, in and out of unconsciousness. If she is falling on the floor, needs help standing. Any of those are called these. what we look for for compelling factor. If she is exhibiting those signs or any of those signs, then it, it could be a, a lack of consent crime if he proceeds. Um, but everyone mixes that up and thinks you can't have sex with a drunk girl. So there's a very distinct difference in that type of lack of consent. Uh, the force rapes are easy. 
you can't compel mm -hmm. someone by a gun, a knife, a bat, or threatening them or strong arming mm -hmm. them. Those are easy, easier to prove up than the intoxication cases. Those are usually a little bit harder to prove. Um, uh, but a, a rapist is motivated and his goal is to achieve uh, rape without chaos. Rapists generally don't like chaos. They generally look for quiet and complacent and compliant victims. They don't like noise. They don't like mace. They don't like trouble. They don't, they certainly don't like chaos. They don't like whistles. They don't like anything that'll bring attention to them accomplishing their goal. And so uh, what I always tell when I, I teach these classes is when you are a victim and you realize that you are, are about to be a victim of a rape, um, you, you, were selected for whatever reason, but one thing that a lot of my victims have in common is they were walking with headphones or ear pods in their ears. Uh, my best advice, if you're going to jog and you wanna jog or walk to music, play it on your phone, not an actual earpiece, because at least when you play it out loud on your phone, uh, you can hear the other noise. Uh, a lot of my stranger serial rape victims were attacked because they had those ear pods in and they were paying no attention. And, and what, is, what is important to know is when you are in that moment and you realize that you're about to be a victim, you have to listen to your instinct, your, your intuition, whatever little bird, whatever you call it, but it's a survival instinct. So if, if you listen to that, it will direct you how to act because there are as many different reactions as there are people. And, and the, the goal is to stay alive and not be a victim of rape. So you have to listen to that feeling, that intuition, and it will tell you what to do. But if it tells you to fight, you need to know how. And uh, most, of course, we can never say all or always, but most of my victims that fought back the rape was actually unsuccessful uh, because rapists don't pick someone that they believe will cause that kind of commotion or fight back. Rapists don't want to fight. They want to compel and quickly get her to where he needs her to be to rape her. That's his ultimate goal. And he'll do whatever means he sees necessary. Um, I worked a rape case on, on a girl that was walking at a Walmart with her Walmart sack. Uh, this case kind of taught me the randomness sometimes of rape, mm -hmm. and she didn't really pay any attention. It was dark, 10, 10, 30 at night. She walks to her car. The rapist was driving through the Walmart parking lot and spotted her. And, and what I interviewed both of them, and what motivated him to pick her was that she was alone at night. So he followed her over a bridge to her apartment. She gets out. She grabs her Walmart sack, and he lunges on her. She fought him all over the apartment sidewalk. It was actually an easy case for me. It was all captured on apartment video. Uh, she fought him all over that sidewalk. She was very battered and so was he, and he did not succeed. Uh, he ended up running off. She bit him, she clawed him, she fought him, she did everything. Uh, the video showed us that he pulled his pants down. And when he did that, she bit him. 
Uh, so she did everything she knew. She had taken a couple of self-defense classes. She was a nursing student. So uh, she did everything she knew to do to not be a victim. She was still traumatized. And she ended up quitting nursing school and moving to Wyoming with her parents uh, till she could kind of get her bearings straight again. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was a sad case, but about a month later, her mom called me and her mom said, I just wanted to tell you that my daughter and I were sitting out on the porch and we had the door open into the house and they could hear the news. And the news said, I guess this is what happens in Wyoming, but the news says, everybody shelter inside, there's a mountain lion loose. And the mom said to her daughter, come on in, we need to go in. And the daughter said, I've already fought a wild animal in Fort Worth. Uh, and, and she won, uh, although she was injured, her goal was to not be raped and she succeeded. Uh, he told me when I interviewed him that he did not expect she would fight back. And when she did, uh, he tried to fight her, but he was ill-prepared because a lot of rapists are weak men and they're, they're cowards. And, and a lot of them pick women that they think will not fight back or women that aren't paying attention. So my best advice is don't use the the ear pods, don't use the headphones, don't do anything that blocks your ability to see, pay attention and hear your surroundings. That's so important. And, and people know this stuff, they just don't know that, that they know. Uh, but there's all kinds of tips. If, if you'll pay attention, you chances are you won't be selected. Uh, rapists do not want uh, fights. Steve, you got anything? Uh, yeah, uh, one of the things that just kind of came to mind was at the last tactical conference, uh, Tom did a uh, really good walk on home invasions, and he talked about this case where a rapist uh, targeted this woman and her daughter in an Aldi's grocery store, uh, followed them around the store uh, when they left. He followed them, uh, you know, they never picked up on him. He got their address and then he started texting back and forth with his buddy and they planned this home invasion. Uh, matter of fact, mm -hmm. it took several days for that. To, are, you, are you familiar with that story, Lee? Where mm -hmm. basically uh, two rapists came in. Uh, I think they came into the house. They hit the husband with a baseball bat, took him down in the basement and then uh, tied him up there. They then forced the woman to go to a bank and withdraw you know, a large sum of money. Uh, she made an attempt to communicate with the teller there that this you know, criminal offense was taking place. They called the police. For whatever reason, the police didn't go in. Uh, these people came back and they eventually killed her. I believe they strangled her mm -hmm. and they raped the two young daughters and then, uh, set them on fire just a horrible horrible yeah. crime and so i don't think that a lot of people realize that there may be someone who's w watching you and checking you out to see if you're a potential victim and if indeed that is the case if while you're out in public if you're uh, w looking around uh if you're noticing things if you see the same person in several places in the same store, as you walk out to your car, you're looking around, you see someone following you, you think that there's somebody following you in a car, 
if you get that kind of hinky feeling, Sherry's got a real good analogy for that, then you need to uh, act upon that. But the end result is, is, you know, the man probably never thought that he would be a victim of a crime that involved mm -hmm. rape, but it can very easily, you know, involve anyone. This whole family was annihilated. Yeah, you know, the, a good piece of advice is just never give up. Uh, it Keeping on, keeping on is sometimes the only way you'll survive it and not be a victim. Uh, the odds of fighting back will give you a better chance usually than not. But like I said, that pay attention to that instinct. It will direct you. Uh, don't talk on the phone when you're out walking. I've had hundreds of rapists in interviews tell me that's what they looked for. Somebody on their phone. They didn't pick the one who looked straight at them, made complete eye contact, the one paying attention, the one not on her phone, the one not with her ear pods in her ears, the one taking care of her business. They've told me they didn't pick her for those reasons. Uh, rapists favor the unprepared. And, and sometimes it really is that simple. Prepare yourself. Uh, what surprises me is I'm a military brat. So every time we moved to a foreign country, the first thing my dad did was teach us the route to the American embassy. Because when you're in a foreign country, the American embassy is your lifeline. So it surprises me that parents don't do that with their kids and spouses don't do that with each other. But you should know when you're coming home from Kroger, you should know where your police station is, the closest one to your house, the closest police station to where you frequent, where you tend to go out a lot, where you tend to shop. You should know where those police stations are. And if you think you're being followed, mm -hmm. you are, and you should never go home. If you suspect someone's following you or watching you, don't go home, go to that police station that hopefully now, after people listen to me say that, they will go and, and route out their nearest police station. Uh, because the last thing you need to be doing is going home. Had that girl, the wild animal girl, had she watched she would have known that those headlights behind mm -hmm. her turned when she turned but she just paid no attention like like most people you don't think you're you're mm -hmm. being watched and you don't think you're being selected uh but she had probably three miles to to figure out somebody was following her and she didn't know to look so if you suspect it's probably true. That instinct that I, I'm going to tell you an analogy on in a minute will better shore that up for you. Uh, so learn your police station, learn to, if you can help it, you know, don't, there's no reason to get gas for a single lone female or a single lone male to get gas at midnight. Why, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Why would you put yourself in a situation if it can be avoided, fill your car up at noon or three p.m.? Uh, you know, so some of it is, is, is it worth it? Do you really need yeah. that beer or that Dr. Pepper or that pack of cigarettes at 10 p.m.? I'm thinking no. Uh, so prepare, yeah. be prepared, be prepared, be prepared. It really is the key to a lot of this. Uh, Let me interject something real quick, because I've got a real life example of what you were talking about, not knowing where the police departments are. 
uh, I've been doing this 24 years in year 21 or two, uh, very early on in my career, we had, uh, I guess you would call him a serial rapist, but he was abducting. There wasn't a pattern to who he was abducting other than the fact that he was abducting women that he could isolate and he was taking them off and raping them. And he attempted to kidnap a girl uh, who was walking back from a college class. And she managed to escape from him. And she ran to a car of friends that were coming to pick her up. She jumped in the car with her friends. They drove right past the police station to get back to the sorority house. Mm. Sat around and discussed it for 20 minutes and then called the police. Hey, our friend, we think was just attempted to be kidnapped by the serial rapist guy that's abducting people. Mm. Yeah, I was in the area. You know, if she'd have, if they'd have gone right down to the PD and hey, this guy just tried to abduct her, we would have swarmed it. Uh, I, I was probably 200, 300 yards away, you know, so, you know separated by buildings. Um, but and I was on foot, but other units in car would have easily swarmed the area. Maybe we would have caught that guy that night. And I'm not sure if it was that night or another night that he managed to capture another victim. I think he got up to three or four before we finally were able to, to capture him. It was actually another agency that, that caught him, but they caught him in the act of trying to abduct a girl. Um, but you know, if that had the thing, it's go straight to the PD, go straight to your local sheriff's office somewhere get on 911 on the phone and get to call the 911 to get the cops started in that direction right then we can't help if we don't know yep uh we you know rapists will sometimes spot their intended victim in public areas and then they'll stalk them uh we had one we had a serial rapist uh, at a college and uh, in Fort Worth. None of the stuff I talk about today is Tarleton. I haven't been here long enough for any of these cases to actually go to court to be public mm -hmm. information. Uh, but we had a college serial rape case. And in, in his particular case, he wanted to rape college students. Uh, so he selected them by their parking sticker uh, on their windshield and or he selected them from the uh, Starbucks type establishments where the students go in and study. Uh, the common factor in his victims was they never noticed him. And some of those victims he watched for three days. He watched them come and go for three days. And the one thing they said was they never knew. So they didn't pay attention. And that really can't be stressed enough. You have to be aware. You have to know what's going on. You can't live in a bubble or in oblivion uh, because the chances are, if you do that, you'll be a victim. And ideally, we should all never be anyone's victim. And, and don't make it easy on them. Don't make it easy for them to select you. Uh, I like those rape whistles. Those are really good. Uh, if you can buy one, find one, you know, keep those on your key ring. Uh, rapists don't like that. They don't like any kind of attention. So that's always what I stress. Um, there is an analogy we, we got from a, a book called The Gift of Fear. You've probably heard of it. Um, uh, Gavin De Becker wrote it. And one of the analogies that he uses is the ice maker 
analogy. And, and it's very true. If I could get people to pay attention to that instinct, that intuition, whatever you call it, little bird, it, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that instinct's job is to steer you from harm and it will never lead you into harm. It will always be your head start to danger. And so a good analogy for that is if, if you're spending the night with a friend, it's the first time you've been there, or you're in a brand new home or an apartment, whatever, and the ice maker drops the ice in your freezer and you hear that kind of crashing sound, uh, it will wake you up. It will scare you and it will wake you up. And until your intuition, your brain realizes that's the ice maker, go back to sleep. I'm not in danger from it. So if you can picture that feeling, that moment of fear, and when you feel that, don't ignore it. A lot of, a lot of people ignore it. I've had a lot of victims tell me, I knew I shouldn't have. I knew, I knew better. Well, that's that, that feeling I'm talking about that, that you need to not ignore. You need to listen to it. It will steer you from danger. If you're at a party and you feel that feeling, that fear, uh, leave. Or if you can't leave, lock yourself in, in a bathroom or a bedroom uh, until you can get help. But uh, people don't listen. A lot of girls, a lot of victims have told me, girls in particular, I, I remember one guy telling me, uh, I had the feeling the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I had a sinking feeling. Those are all descriptions of this warning sign that we all have. It's, it's a survival sign. And they tell me, I didn't want to be rude. I, he hadn't done anything. He hadn't said anything. And I say he just because most of it's easier. Most of my rapists are he. Most of my victims are she, although it's very interchangeable. Uh, but they tell me they didn't want to be rude. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. I thought it was just me. And they don't listen to that head start. And they find themselves in trouble. And uh, if I could get people to pay attention to that feeling, and everybody, almost everybody has experienced that ice maker fear. But hang on to that feeling and pay attention and listen to it. It will steer you from danger if you learn to recognize it and listen to it. And uh, I always thought Gavin DeBecker did a good job on that, that ice maker analogy because it's something we can all relate to. And then now we can think back to times we felt that feeling and either acted on it and it saved us or we didn't act on it and it hurt us. But everybody has felt that fear, that feeling. So that's, oh, that's yeah. very important. I grew up way out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you had to go to the middle of nowhere and take a left to get right <laughs> And when I went off to college, I moved into, for me, what was a large city on the grand scheme of things that wasn't. And I lived near where the railroad, the trains swapped tracks in the city. And I did not know this when I moved into the apartment. And then the very first night I was sleeping in, the, in my <laughs> new apartment, three o'clock in the morning, wow, wow. And I jumped up, it was, you know, I had a Ruger Super Single Six and 22 Magnum and a 12 gauge shotgun. And I was jumping up and grabbing, what on earth is that? And it finally dawned on me. Okay, that's some sort of noise way out. And like the next day I went out in the daylight looking for what could have been the source to that noise. And like, oh, there's the switch yard. And I figured out what is it after that? I just slept right through it. 
See, but, uh, because your your that intuition instinct has already ruled that out as danger. Yeah. That's why you I, were I did, like through it. I did live uh, right next to a liquor store, which was cleverly enough the road that I lived on was on Hill Street. The name of the liquor store was Hill Street Booze. <laughs> and there was a, a guy I can't make it up uh, with a leaf blower would get out there every Saturday morning and, and clean the parking lot with the leaf blower and I never got to where I could sleep through that but I got where I could sleep through their strength right but you could yeah, sleep just, for yeah, that it's because it was annoying yeah. not because yeah. it was dangerous right right. so that's yeah. that feeling yeah I just remember that first night when there's trains slab together just jumping up com completely wide awake yeah i think that is a good thing is people will talk ourselves out of what we know to be a scary situation right like a lot we, of we, we pick up on it mm -hmm. i'm sorry go ahead. oh no i'm sorry a lot of women will say oh, i don't want to be a bitch well it's okay yeah. to be a bitch if you're if you're feeling uncomfortable there's usually a reason for that if you feel scared or that fear, there's mm -hmm. usually a reason. Uh, so it's okay to be a bitch. You, if, if a guy stops a girl and asks for directions or asks for help to fix his tire or his car, walk on. There's, there's mm -hmm. no guy that's legitimately going to ask a 19-year-old college girl for help for his spark plugs or flat tire uh, if he really needs help he, he can ask uh, a group of people or or a guy uh, so that's a good clue for for girls don't stop listen to that instinct and move on and say i'm sorry i can't help you if you even say anything at all but it's okay to be rude to somebody particularly strangers if you feel that feeling of fear uh, i had a male victim of a rape left uh, his fast food restaurant. He got off work at two in the morning. He was walking home and, and a, a guy yelled at him from across the street and said, I need help. I need help. And he told me, I stood there for a split second and, and this feeling kind of overwhelmed me that said, don't do it. Don't do it. And he said, I didn't want to be rude and not help somebody. So he walked across the street. As soon as he got there, of course, the guy drug him behind the building and raped him. Uh, and so there you you have that feeling that he unfortunately didn't listen to. Ten months later, that that uh, guy's parents called and said he still wasn't eating solid food. That's how traumatized and and hurt and harmed that he had been by that rape. Uh, so that feeling never, ever, ever ignore it. It's there for a reason. It will keep you safe but you have to pay attention mm -hmm. to it. And, and I really can't say that enough. I've had so many rape victims tell me, I knew better. If your brain says, I knew better, then don't do it. You know, Lee, this kind of brings to mind uh, Craig Douglas and uh, managing unknown contacts. You know, maybe the importance for all of us to have in place a script that we can resort to that we don't have to rise to the occasion, but we know what we're going to say and how we're going to say it, which is, you know, that very first thing is, sorry, I can't help you. Uh, if they continue to encroach, should be moving at this point, you need to stay back a little sterner. And then finally that stay back, you know, I mean, in terms of a loud yell or scream, if you will, and 
if that person continues to encroach upon you, then at that point, they pretty much revealed their intentions. And, you know, maybe at that point, uh, maybe some sort of defensive display or use of force uh, may be in order. And the other thing I think it's important is that, uh, you know, over the years, I, I know uh, I've talked to women that said they, their mothers always told them to walk around with their keychain in their hand with the keys between their fingers or always to, you know, carry OC or pepper spray or, you know, all you need to do was kick the man in the groin, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's really if someone attacks you. Uh, it's not going to look like that. You know, having an understanding yeah. of what that movie actually looks like and then being mentally prepared and then better yet physically prepared through, you know, maybe mm -hmm. some defensive training, I think goes a long ways in terms of keeping people, you know, safe from this crime. And training is a tool in your toolbox. So why not add all the tools that you can into your toolbox? Because you, when you react to a crime and a lot of uh, rapists in particular have an advantage because for a few moments, that victim is in complete disbelief and may not be able to, to realize what's going on in time so it's very very important to that you always are mentally prepared as well as physically uh there's somebody bigger out there than all of us it's all in your training and you will revert to what you know so you it's very important take some self-defense classes take self uh awareness anything you can do it's a tool and and you need your toolbox to be full when you are a victim it may actually prevent you from being a victim yeah i would like to point out here uh, the late william april used to talk on that subject a bit and he would say caution people about these one night women's self-defense seminars uh, that it gave a false sense of security and then that sense of security was was wiped away when the girl would come home or the boyfriend would say okay get out of this hole or their older brother would do it, you know, something like, and then they couldn't do that. And then, then the female was, you know, well, I'm just totally defenseless and they would give up at that point. He would say you have to would instill in them, you know, the will to fight and that nobody's allowed to put their hands on them without their permission. Uh, when I talk to teenage girls or teenage boys for that matter, or, or anyone, uh, women, is never get taken to crime scene number two. Never. If someone, if someone tries to abduct you, you fight literally to the death right where you are because if you go to crime scene number two, it's not going to be good. Everything that happens between crime scene one and crime scene two is going to be utterly brutal. So you fight at the point where someone tries to abduct you, making as much noise and inflicting as much pain and damage as you can because that's where you get away if you're able to get away. That's where you win. And the abductor have relies. to instill that in people. Yeah, that's true. Very true. The abductor relies on get in the car. You won't get hurt. Well, that's exactly what he's going to do. A, an abductor's reason for moving you is because where he has originally seen you is likely too busy, too many people around. Mm -hmm. So he takes you to an isolated place. It will never end well yeah. for you ever. You have a better chance of surviving that encounter or abduction or incident, whatever you call it, uh, by trying to run away, 
screaming, creating mm -hmm. as much chaos as you can. Those abductors, those rapists, those criminals don't like chaos. So do whatever you can do to create as much of that as possible. Once you get in the car, it, it will absolutely not end well for you. And you can't, you can't believe anyone uh, if their intention mm -hmm. is to harm you because they'll say anything to gain compliance. That's their ultimate goal is to gain compliance so they can rape you uh, or worse. But that's a rapist goal is to gain compliance, however means he feels necessary to get you to, to be his victim. So you have to always never give up and, and your instinct will tell you what to do. But most of my victims tell me that fighting back helped them and saved them to an extent. Steve? Well, you know, the thing I'd just like to point out again is just kind of going back to Craig Douglas and some of these other guys. These guys are really putting out a lot of good content. Uh, anything that you're going to pick up from them or anybody else, uh, it, you're not going to gain a lot in a short duration class, but can get you started on a path in which, uh, you know what, you can continue to train and you could actually if you do this successfully, have something to fall back on in terms of uh, something to revert to. You know, uh, Sherry once mentioned if you, you know, if you need to reach for a tool and there's no tools in your toolbox, there's not much you can do. But if you can just have a few things in there that you can do and be willing to do, have an understanding for what uh, this assault might actually look like, and the fact that this assault can come in different forms. I mean, okay, well, all right, well, date rape doesn't sound like that's probably something that's going to happen to, you know, to me or, you know, those around me. But what about acquaintance rape? Acquaintance may just be very well, you don't even, you hardly know the person, but they know you, they're familiar with you, or they're familiar with someone mm -hmm. that, uh, that you know. And then, of course, the stranger and serial rape, uh, I know that that's not very common, but, you know, that's not much of a comfort if you're the anomaly and stuff like that does happen and the stuff that people are willing to do nowadays. And we could even take this off into, in some ways, the ultimate objective may not necessarily be sexual assault, but it could be sex trafficking. That is, you're being kidnapped and taken to a place where you can be basically sexually assaulted by others for commercial gain. Uh, there's a lot that we need to be aware of. And, uh, you know, and, and hopefully just that knowledge uh, will keep something like that from, you know, befalling us and our families. And, and it's true. Your brain is not going to revert to something you've learned once. So it is important that you you keep training, you stay aware of of classes sign up for classes what can you do how how can it hurt you to learn uh, to watch out for things like if you're leaving the grocery store with a bag and you see your car and right next to you on the left side is a van with a guy in it why would you load those groceries on that side of your car either wait it out or or go to the other side of your car. It's things that people know, they just don't realize they know. It, and it's tips like that, stay aware and, and you'll stay safer, uh, which leads us to human trafficking. Human trafficking is, is a lot easier of a crime 
to prove sometimes than sexual assault because human trafficking is the legal definition is if you compel someone to have sex with other people for your profit, you're a human trafficker. And the only exception to that is if they're minors. We don't need to prove any of the elements of human trafficking if you're a minor. Uh, but the elements of human trafficking from a legal standpoint are fraud, force, or coercion. And those are pretty easy to explain. The force is easy. Uh, everybody knows you can't compel someone to have sex with someone else while you profit off of it by using a gun, a knife, a rope, force, bodily injury. Uh, that's easy. The fraud, we didn't see a whole lot of fraud in uh, human trafficking we, because that's the nanny or the model element. Uh, we suspect we didn't get a lot of those cases because those victims tend to not be able to escape. Uh, so, of course, if you can't escape a situation, you can't file a police report. Uh, that's the nanny, the model, where you show up at a place and you think you're going to get a modeling job or a nanny job and you're then thrust into a human trafficking situation. Uh, those, uh, those victims tend to not have told anybody where they're going. No one knows. Uh, they didn't uh, route it out. They left no clue. And so those are very difficult cases to find the victims after you're victimized. Uh, the coercion is, is you can't man manipulate and, and there's a specific definition of that. Uh, and a, a good example of coercion and human trafficking is a, a guy who lived in an apartment. He uh, saw his, uh, on the same landing, they shared apartments on that same landing. And she had a couple of kids and she had just been through, he did his homework. Human traffickers are very patient people, but he did his homework. She had just come off of a nasty divorce and an, an even nastier custody battle. So she was, uh, she didn't trust the system. She didn't trust the government, Child Protective Services, the police, any of those agencies. So he compelled her, and that's the key word, compelled. He compelled her to have sex with his friends to start with, and then it was strangers, uh, by convincing her that he would call and report her for abusing her kids uh, to Child Protective Services and that she would lose them. So you see how he coerced her. He played on her fear of Child Protective Services and her experience, and he profited off of compelling her to have sex with other men. That's a good, a good example of coercion in a case that we had of human trafficking. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the difference between prostitute and trafficking victim or pimp and trafficker. And it's very easy. Once I tell you, everyone will say they knew that. They just didn't realize they knew it. Uh, so the difference is you have to look at the element of control. If the, 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 the female or male, it's interchangeable, but for easier purposes, if the female is forced to prostitute by those factors, fraud, force, or coercion, if she is compelled and she has no choice for fear of death or injury or a factor like that, then she is a trafficking victim. A prostitute may feel like she has no choice, but if he is not compelling her by those three factors, then she's a prostitute. So it's easy to remember, you just look at the control and that'll tell you whether she's a trafficking victim or a prostitute. Uh, 
uh, a good another good case for coercion and this is a particularly sad case steve's heard this several times you're going to get tired of hearing these cases <laughs> days. but a very good uh case we we got a conviction was a single mother spent uh, a lot of about six months a lot of time convincing her 18 year old daughter to have sex with men for money and she she convinced her daughter that they would be evicted. They'd have to go to a homeless shelter. They would be raped and starve. And eventually uh, she was able to convince her daughter by those factors to have sex with other men for her profit. Uh, so you see how how coercion is is at play here. You, you can't compel someone by manipulating their weakness your profit so that's pretty a pretty easy one to remember uh, uh let's see another uh thing that i always like to tell when i talk about human trafficking is don't get caught up in the trafficking part people think that it, you fill an 18 wheeler or you smuggle someone from place to place but human trafficking sex trafficking doesn't have anything to do with movement from one location to the next you can actually be just like the girl i told you about you can actually be a human trafficking victim and never leave your home uh we another case we had was two parents uh, allowed men to come into the house and they charged uh $50 for these men to have sex with their eight-year-old and $80 for the men to have sex with their five-year-old uh, for their profit. So they are human traffickers and people don't realize that it, it's really so close to home. We could throw some rocks and hit a house with some form of trafficking uh, because people think that it's a border problem, but it's not. It's a compelling sex with another person while you profit it's a money-making machine is what human trafficking is and that's why it's it's out there and it's so prevalent because these traffickers make money off of this and human beings are so reusable that it can continue and continue and continue uh, so do you see the difference though in the motivations of sexual assault and the motivations of human trafficking they're very different crimes. Hey, Sherry, talk about the one at Denny's, which I think that had elements of both uh, trafficking and sexual assault. Yes, uh, uh, a girl met a guy online like everybody seems to be doing nowadays. She did everything she thought she was supposed to do. They met at a Denny's, uh, uh, what do you call Denny's restaurant, breakfast place? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, but a Denny's. and. Um, they, they ate their meal, and right as they were finished, he jabbed her in the thigh under the table with a needle, and she woke up in a Louisiana motel, and if it has, hadn't been for the apartment video, I wouldn't have believed the sheer numbers, but in the span of that weekend, he brought 40 men to that hotel room to have sex with her. And what's so compelling about this case is the, the 40 men that had sex with her 
they are not traffickers. They didn't profit off of that. They are rapists. They've committed the crime of sexual assault. They knew she was drugged. They knew she was incapacitated and unable to consent. So they're the, in, in that case, they're the rapists. The trafficker is the one who jabbed her in the thigh. He's the one running the operation. He's the one profiting. And in that particular case, he actually didn't have sex with her. But if he had, you would have both crimes. But as a detective, you would want to go with the human trafficking because it's a federal crime and you tend to get longer sentences and they serve day to day than, than most state crimes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's stuff like that that's especially, you know, frightening to me is because, you know, this was, this was, I, I know where this Denny's was. It was in a very nice part of Fort Worth, just north of 820. It's a nice, you know, area and everything. Uh, lots of nice restaurants. And it, it would seem like she did everything proper. She met this guy at a public area at a nice or nice enough diner. And then this took place. And so all of a sudden, it makes it real obvious to me that people that I never thought might be a victim of uh, sex trafficking uh, actually are more of a target than I had ever considered. That's true. Uh, and there's like rapists, there's different kinds of traffickers. Uh, the college campus is right for human trafficking because the trafficker in a college atmosphere will tend to select that student that we all know, the one who's isolated, lonely, the one who's neglected, trying to fit in, trying to be popular, hasn't ever been away from home, has no real family, or if they do have family, came from generally an abusive atmosphere. Uh, the one who escaped poverty. Those are high risk factors. Anybody, like Steve said, can be a human trafficking victim, but those are the high risk factors. Uh, and in a, in a college type atmosphere, the college cases we've had with trafficking, once that trafficker selects his victim, he'll work to gain their trust, either as a close friend or boyfriend. Uh, he'll work at becoming that victim's inner circle the one the victim depends on trust. As soon as he does that, pays a few bills for her, gets her to rely on him, then he will coerce her by saying something like, well, it's time you do your part in this relationship or this friendship. And, and it starts out generally with, I need you to have sex with a couple of my friends. That's a way for you to pay me back for all that I've done. But in reality, he set this whole thing up. And, and then the couple of friends becomes 10, 15, 20, and then becomes strangers. And before you know it, he's the one making a lot of money off of forcing her to engage in trafficking. Uh, a, a college theme I see a lot is um, the trafficker will convince her that uh, he'll share drugs with her. He'll give her the drugs, pay for them, give them to her, provide them. And then he'll uh, say, I will report you to the dean's office and you'll lose your scholarship. You'll be kicked out of this university. And then I'll take you back home to the home where you were physically and sexually abused to start with. And so that's that's a big compelling factor on, on colleges is that um, I'll report you and get you kicked out. Uh, Believe it or not, we see that a lot, more often than you would think. So colleges are ripe. Um, uh, 
you know, as law enforcement, as you know, it's very difficult to get human trafficking victims to cooperate. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of the, the big reasons we see is she's been uh, taught that if she reports him, we might arrest him. Uh, and he might even get convicted, but then what will happen to her? And so what people don't realize is the human trafficking victims only education and only educator is that trafficker. So these victims, that's why it's so important to get the word out. These victims don't realize there's help like Cross Timbers or One Safe Place or, or these victim advocate agencies. So they tend to not report it because their trafficker is the evil they know versus the evil they don't know. And they will continue to be victims because they're being fed. They're, there's a house, a roof over their head, shelter, and they don't know who they will turn to if they report him. So this is the stuff he teaches her. So it's important that you know there's a lot of help out there. Uh, another reason is that trauma bond. Everybody's heard of that. It's very difficult to get a human trafficking victim to help us. Uh, when she's been convinced by this trafficker that she gets to live every day and doesn't get beat up every day because he allows that. He allows her to live every day and he he doesn't beat her. So there's a big trauma bond. It, it's a very conflicting, uh, conflicted victim. So they're very difficult cases, but once we get the case, it's reported and we investigate it, we do tend to get those convictions on human trafficking. Then uh, there's a lot of hurdles, but those are just a few that, that we're touching on. Uh, uh, I bet a lot of people didn't know the difference between a prostitute and a trafficking victim. Yeah. That's always new. I always get some people that, that thought a pimp is a trafficker. They're, they're not anything the same. You know, Lee, no. I was telling, go ahead. No, stay back. Uh, I was telling Sherry, uh, it's been maybe 10 years ago or so, I believe I was with uh, Hany Mahmood and we were serving warrants and uh, we arrested a guy on a bench warrant and we took him into the Tarrant County Jail. And when we went into the area where uh, the prisoners are booked, uh, there was a half dozen what I thought of as prostitutes. Uh, no, they were sitting there waiting to be booked. And uh, while our guy was being fingerprinted and, you know, uh, doing all the stuff that he had to do before being, you know, taken into the proper jail itself. Uh, I was kind of watching them and I was so struck by the fact that they didn't look like anything I ever thought a prostitute mm -hmm. would look like. Uh, they looked like they were 17 or 18 years old. Uh, they were very young. Uh, they didn't dress real provocative. Uh, and they were just so agitated and nervous. I mean, I, I told people they were literally grooming each other. You could just tell, you know, how distraught they were. And I was like going, golly, girls, you know, you really should have make, need to make better choices. This is not the way that you need to uh, conduct your lives. And then once I became aware of what a problem uh, sex trafficking was, and I realized those were probably, I, I'm, I'm completely sure of it, they were just victims. You know, I've never have quite forgiven myself for being so judgmental. And uh, so now this is just really kind of a big deal to me. And 
I don't think people really realize how much of this takes place in our communities. Uh, at what risk our, our, you know, our children and our grandchildren may be. And this is just something that we don't want happening around us. So uh, this is one of the reasons that, uh, like I said, I kind of badgered Sherry to uh, come on a couple of podcasts. I wanted to do that one with Brian. I wanted to do this one. I uh, really kind of wanted to focus mostly on sexual assault on this one, just simply because mm -hmm. we hadn't addressed that topic before. But I also appreciate the fact that you let us talk about sex trafficking also. And I, I hope all this information is of value to someone. Sure, sure. If we, if we could pivot for a second and go back to, uh, to assault and the reporting aspect, uh, I want to talk about underreporting, and then I want to talk about false reporting for just a second. In your experience, and I know this is going to be a kind of a guesstimation thing, how much underreporting do you think it is? People that are actually victims of a sexual assault and they don't report it for whatever reason and what are some of them? Uh, probably double. Double, we have twice as many victims as we know of. And I always, always say the key to all of this is information, education, and knowledge. And we cannot help if we don't know. Report it, let us look into it. Uh, if the elements are met, we'll make the arrest. If he's innocent, and, and my unit, my sex crimes unit, it, as I, when I was a detective as well as a supervisor, we, we always uh, prided ourselves on the fact that the system has to work for everybody or, or it doesn't work at all. And, and who wants to operate in a broken system? Because in a broken system, none of us are safe. So it was as important as a detective, and I taught my detectives, it, it's as important that you properly investigate a case, therefore you have to be properly trained. And it's as important that you clear the innocent as arrest the guilty. Nobody wants to arrest an innocent man, and no one wants to let a guilty one go. So uh, it's very, very important that you, you investigate properly. Uh, I get a lot, even at the, the college here, I get a lot of rape victims that say, well, my friend was raped and the police never did anything. And then when I look into it, the friend never reported it. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I get that rape is a vicious and hideous crime and it, it can be a life altering crime as well. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of apprehension, a lot of, uh, they'll beat me up on the stand. I get that a lot. I don't want to get beat up on the stand. Well, let's get it to that point because in my experience, victims heal better when they have some sort of help. We don't even necessarily have to get the conviction, but just to have me walk through the system with a rape victim most of the time they tell me that process in itself helps them heal uh people who don't report it who who keep it in who who suffer through it alone they tend to not be as productive as they could have been uh so you have to you have to report it let us sort it out we'll sort it out if if we can make the arrest we will if we can't we'll tell you why we can't but at least at least report it did you see in your area an uptick in false reports during the whole me too movement in the last couple of years 
Uh, I did, and you know, delayed reports are their own beast. I have successfully gotten cases prosecuted for delay reports. Uh, the false reports, you know, it, it's what's funny is when we, whenever we go into war somewhere in the world, there's a huge increase in rape cases uh, and false reports. And I didn't realize that until uh, Bush took us into war. And, and suddenly we begin to realize we have even more cases than our normal caseload, which was high anyway. There were only four of us in the city of Fort Worth. And so I asked, uh, one of the girls came in, she filed a rape case and, and I, I knew based on a lot of factors that she was lying about it. And I asked her why. And she said, uh, when we go into war, the boyfriends and the husbands leave. And in her case, she had gotten pregnant and her husband was due back. And so she, that's her reason to lie. Uh, uh, I get a lot of, of girls who break curfew and they're going to get kicked out of their parents' house. So all of a sudden they're a rape victim. And, you know, seven out of 10, by far the majority of rape cases filed are true. It They might be a case of he saw the situation differently than her, like those lack of consents we, we talked about briefly. Mm -hmm. It might be where two people see the same thing in a different way. It, it may not be a rape case, but by far seven out of 10 are true cases. Uh, three out of 10 on average are false reports. And uh, uh, I have arrested women. The, in my experience, I, I never arrested a man for a false police report. My experience is with, with women. I used a very strict criteria because you don't want to arrest uh, easily for a false police report. Uh, so my criteria was there had to be harm caused to him. Uh, he had to lose custody or a job or be arrested. Uh, he had to suffer some loss. She had to name him. I didn't arrest anyone. My criteria is so strict on that that I didn't arrest her for a false police report if her suspect was a white male. Because for my criteria, for my unit's criteria, there's there's no harm actually suffered to a guy. I I got her confession, I documented it, but uh, to arrest a, a woman who filed a false police report, I needed that strict criteria and I needed the whole thing to be a fairy tale. One girl, uh, one woman, I got two years, uh, she got convicted and got sentenced for two years. And so, and this will kind of explain how we picked our battles uh, because you never want to if you're not a very, very good investigator, you could accuse a true victim of a false report. So the key is in training and being a very good investigator. So if you're not an excellent investigator, you really don't have any business arresting people for false police report. It has to be ironclad, 100% false. And, and with the confession and, and the explanation. So one woman that uh, I arrested for false police report, uh, her ex-husband was getting remarried. And uh, it, of course, that made her very jealous and bitter. And so she had her mother 
pull her hair extensions out and bash her face into the wall. And then she reported to us that her ex-husband had raped her and beat her. And uh, I brought him in uh, because I, I never worked a case where I didn't try to offer the suspect the opportunity there are two sides to every story mm -hmm. and sometimes you get your suspect in and you end up with a confession so it always benefits the detective to at least touch base and try to get the suspect to come in and give his story uh and his version of events so i brought him in and he was able to prove that he had been in hawaii uh, and she just didn't know that he had a destination wedding. He actually was in Hawaii at the same day and time that she said he raped her and beat her. Uh, so I was able to arrest her because there's that criteria of the entire scenario was false. He never was at her house that day. He didn't pull her hair out. He didn't do anything. He was actually in another state. So that, that was a good uh, false police report case. And, and it caused harm to him. And, and she named him, you know, that I, it's just, it's hideous to think of, of naming a guy as a rape suspect if he didn't do it. So it's just so important that, that your department train you to investigate these cases. Uh, and like I said, my criteria was very strict on that we, because you run the risk of, of a true victim being falsely accused of a false report. And uh, you also run the risk of scaring off legitimate victims. They don't want to talk to you. They, they won't want to report to you. So my best advice is report it, let us sort it out. Uh, but I can't help you if I don't know. And, and that's right. so true. Steve, uh we're getting close to the end of our time here. So I want to try to give people some solutions and then I'm going to get on a soapbox to close this out. But Steve, before we do that, uh, what training solution suggestions do you have uh, that, that, you know, for, for women, for people that have teenage children that are going off to college, et cetera. Uh, what are some, what, what's some good advice and some good training that you would give to those people? Well, I think uh, in terms of good advice, uh, especially for the, the people themselves, the, the young men and women going off to school and everything, is be aware uh, how serial rapists, how stranger rapists, how date rape, acquaintance rape, all this stuff can work. And do what you can to not put yourself in a position. Obviously, if you're going to go out and you're going to go do some drinking with some friends, uh, if you're going to go out to a bar, uh, all these places, uh, these are things where these are, you know, situations in when stuff like this can happen. You know, I know that there have been situations where men have preyed on women that were either uh, intoxicated or inebriated. I know of instances where they put, uh, you know, something in the drink that caused the woman to, you know, basically be incapacitated. It's not that uncommon. And just be aware uh, if you're going to go out to a place like that. Uh, you want to go out in numbers and you want to uh, watch everyone else's back. Uh, the other thing is, is be aware uh, when you're in public of persons and everything that's going on around you. You know, very much as Sherry and you said, uh, you know, don't keep your ear pods on. Don't wear your headphones. Don't keep your nose buried in your phone. Anytime you're in a transitional area like a parking lot 
or a, uh, you know, like an ATM or a service station. Uh, focus on going from point A to point B and don't try to multitask and look at something on your phone or something at the same time. Be aware of what's going on. Indeed, if you see anything that looks uh, a little bit what we might refer to as hinky, go ahead and act upon it. It doesn't mean you're paranoid, but go ahead, you know, give it a little bit of scrutiny. And if you've got a little bit of doubt about it, then don't put yourself in a position where that you can be compromised. I think uh, understanding the managing of unknown contacts, uh, if someone puts you in a situation that causes you to feel some concern, being able to say from the very beginning, sorry, I can't help you, and increasing your distance from them if they continue to move on them, be able you know, to say something like the effect, you need to stay back and eventually stay back. Uh, go ahead and get some training. As you know, we're firearm trainers. Uh, we'd like to see more people become, uh, you know, competent with firearms. Uh, along with that, you know, learn how to use OC. Uh, I'm a big advocate of martial arts, especially like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, a lot of stuff like that. That's, that's good. Uh, but the main thing is, is just understand that, yes, indeed, uh, we could all become a victim of crime and be looking for anything that would cause us concern and have a plan for dealing with it. I think that's a that's a good way to go. I tell the, the guys out here at the college, uh, my best advice is if she's drinking, pass it up. Catch her later. It's <laughs> it's funny, but it's so true. It will save a lot of heartache. Uh, and my best advice to the the girls is uh, don't drink so much that you give up control of the three feet around you in every direction. Don't willingly give that up. Yeah, you know, the alcohol is a big, big, big thing. And I, I once worked in a campus setting and I can't tell you how many reports of sexual assault or girl who wanted to make, talk to an officer she went to or she went to the hospital and the hospital called and we were dispatched there to where the girls like, I got drunk and I blacked out and I feel like something happened to me but I don't know if it did or exactly what did happen and that's the thing if you're drinking to that point okay you are putting yourself at danger right. Sherry do you have any resources that you could point people to uh, out in Stephenville, Cross Timbers is an excellent resource. They'll, they'll help everybody. Uh, in Fort Worth, one safe place. But every town, every city, every state has these agencies. You just need to look up your, the, your local agency. There's a, a, a national human trafficking hotline. There's a rape hotline. Just learn those numbers. Put those numbers in your phone. Put your police department number in your phone the address know where it's at it's the basic stuff don't load your groceries in on the side there's a guy sitting in a car uh don't get gas at midnight i mean there's a lot of common sense things that people can do to avoid being being selected as a victim and if you are then listen to your instinct and it will tell you how to handle that situation and survive it oh one thing i might add now that i have a moment to think about it uh if you're at a service station and you're filling your car up, uh, lock the doors, uh, go ahead, 
start filling up the car and then either stand. My, my preference is I want to stand between either the front or the rear of my car and the windows to the, where the store is. And I want to be in a position where someone can't push me into my car or as I'm getting into my car, they open the passenger door and jump in. And that's something that I've seen uh, happen quite a bit. That's very true. All right, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a moment and I'm going to fuss at some parents. And it's going to come off as fussing, but it's really not fussing. It's, it's really intended for you to think about what you're telling your children and the tone that you are setting. Um, I was the evening shift supervisor and it was on a Saturday and I had gotten all my officers, gotten their, their assignments and they had all already left the station and I finished up some paperwork and I come walking out in the parking lot to get in my patrol car and leave. And a young man approaches me in the parking lot and says, uh, I have a friend that's been hurt. I think she's been hurt. Would you talk with her? And he gets this girl to get out of the car and we, we go, we, we go talk. And what has happened to her is in a college dorm, her roommate allowed the, the roommate invited her boyfriend to come visit her. And the roommate boyfriend brought along two friends. Well, the roommate and her boyfriend were having sex in the, the roommate's bed. And the two friends decided to help themselves to the young lady that was in the parking lot talking to me. And it was very clear to me that this was a legit multiple party gang rape of what happened to this young lady. Um, and Sherry, you're, you're going to understand my frustration as I relay this story to you. She had not yet taken a shower. She had saved the clothes that she wore and she had not stripped the sheets off of the bed and washed them. So every bit of DNA evidence I would have needed to have gotten a conviction was preserved at that point. She did not know their full names, but she knew their first names. And we knew that they had gotten access to the room by the roommate's boyfriend. So I knew I could track them down. Ultimately, she refused to file a report because her father had beaten it into her that she was not allowed to let boys come into her dorm room and to report the crime, she was going to have to admit to her father that boys were allowed in the dorm room. And I tried to explain it to her. I think your father will understand that your roommate allowed them in, that you didn't do this. And this horrible thing has happened to you. But ultimately, she could not get over that she would have to report to her father. And so I often think about that girl and what she has lived with since then. I hope she got help. I hope she got counseling. But I know that there are two rapists running loose that I could have put in prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, on all the cop shows and the movies, I always had the one about the case that haunts them. That's mine. That's the one that haunts me. Uh, I know I could have had him after all of the frustrating false reports or he said she said or, or unfounded cases that I worked um, to have one that I know I could have gotten success a successful prosecution on and could have put legitimate bad guys in prison and because that tone had been set in that home of you shall not allow a boy in your dorm room 
did. Well, there's, she's also been probably taught that that mm -hmm. things like that are her fault. Yeah, yeah. She so, felt like she she had yeah, done wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah. I just I, I just had to close a case not too mm -hmm. long ago of a, a college girl that had a party and mm -hmm. was raped, and her parents convinced her uh, they would get in more trouble for hosting the party and providing the alcohol in the home the parents bought to for her to live in while she's in college. So the parents actually yeah. own that home. And I, yeah. I spent days and days and days trying to convince her and them that alcohol mm -hmm. it, at this point is a non-factor, but they could never get over the, we're going to get sued. And so I, mm -hmm. I couldn't get her to uh, file either. No. The, the other thing that I have found repeatedly frustrating is parents that can't accept that their little girl had sex. And Steve, we're getting a lot of background noise from your mind. Um, yeah, I get that a lot. You know, they just can't accept the fact that their little girl had sex. And when it becomes readily apparent that that's what's happened, then the little girl says she was raped because she can't admit to her parents that she had sex. Oh, yeah. And then that starts this whole thing uh, of the whole legal system that, that gets going. Um, parents, if you're parents, how did you get your children? You engaged in sexual activity. <laughs> Guess what? We're humans. This is how the species propagates. So I understand all this stuff that goes along with it. But understand, that's how you got here. That's how your children got here. And that's how humans continue to be humans. True. And if sex is compelled by those factors, right. then, right. then it's a crime. If not, then it's right. not. Right. It sometimes is that simple. Right. I'm going to break internet character here a little bit. I normally keep my family life of living family members completely separated because of some other issues in the past. I had an online stalker and all, all that kind of stuff uh, years ago. And so to protect um, my family, I just made that decision. Now I'm no longer in the public eye position that I once was. Okay, folks, I have a teenage daughter. A cute blonde teenage daughter. And here's the talk that I have with her. It's yours. Do with it what you want to. With it. It's not mine. It's up to you to decide who you engage in that activity with. I said, but here are the things you need to understand. You are forever emotionally tied to this person. You are forever physically tied to this person. There are consequences. You get pregnant. Do you want to raise a child with no help? Do you want to have to every, you know, every other weekend turn your child over to someone that you hate? Or that may not be a good setting for them. You know, all of those things, you need to take that into account as part of your decision-making. I said, but you will never, ever, ever be in trouble for telling me, daddy, I decided to do this. All right, daddy understands. And you will not be in trouble with me if that's the decision you make. The counterpoint to that is if you ever come home and said, daddy, someone did this to me without my permission, I wonder, understand daddy's going full daddy mode okay <laughs> that's the thing 
I will give you the trust. You had the permission. You know, you you make your decision. But understand, if you ever tell me that this has happened to you, that I'm going to go all out with every bit of resource I can muster, every favor I can call in, everything, because Daddy's going to believe you. Because you will not be in trouble with me for choosing to have sex. And yeah. You'll appreciate this. This uh, forward yeah. officer that I worked with, his yeah. daughter got married. She was 30 at the time, but she got married. And at the uh, reception, you'll love this story being the dad of yeah. a teenager. Yeah. Uh, at the reception, he walked over to the groom and he handed the groom a bullet in front of everybody. And he said, son, I want you to hang on to this. You ever break anything but her heart or hurt anything but her feelings? The next one's coming a lot faster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just amazing this whole social construct that we put on this physical act and everything. And, and I understand all the ramifications that come that can come with it. Uh, but this whole social construct with it is just, you know, it's this beautiful thing and we make it somehow sometimes be evil. And it was a very real thing out there. And I, I got called one night by a father wanting some advice. And he was kind of in this position with his teenage daughter. He suspected something would happen, but his daughter was not being forthcoming with him. And he's like, how can I get her to open up and talk with me? And I said, you can tell her that it's okay if she had sex and tell her that you're her daddy, that you'll still love her and that you'll understand. And that if she tells you that's what happened, that's the end of this. But if she tells you she was right, then we need to start the process. And yeah, the daddy said, okay, I'm going to follow that advice. And it worked out well from, from that end. And, you know, there's no 100% bulletproof advice she can give you, but don't, what, I, what I'm trying to get at with this is don't create this whole atmosphere or your child is afraid to tell you the truth. That's right. They'll they'll tell someone if not you, and then who they may not get the help they need. Uh, they have yeah, to trust you. And another good uh, point is your your son or daughter should have a code word. If they ever call you and say this particular code word, then then that means yeah. they're in trouble. They need help, and no questions asked. Go get them. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm almost more afraid that to let my son, I have a son as well, who's getting to be a teenager. I'm almost more afraid for him than I was, was with my daughter. And because, quite frankly, she just hates everybody and won't have anything to do with it, guys. So it's, I don't have to worry about, about that. I'm, I'm like trying to fix her up with people. And she's like, no, I'm not interested. Um, but that's why. The system has to work for everybody. It has to work for yeah. your son and it has to work for your daughter. And true rape yeah. victims should be encouraged and supported. Right. And and they have to feel encouraged and supported or they won't report it and they won't get the help that they need to heal. Right. It is. And, for, oh, and for those parents, if you're creating that atmosphere where your children are scared to come forward to you and tell you the truth and everything, you are perpetuating a broken system. Yes. And you are perpetuating false reporting and you're perpetuating under-reporting. You are part of that, both sides of that same problem. 
let's flip that coin no matter which way it lands. You're on it. So think about the tone that you are setting with your children. Just think about that. Uh, Sherry, you got anything in closing? No, I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. Steve, you got anything in closing? Uh, no, only that you kind of made me think, you know, I've had people talk about how their child lied to them. And so my first question always is, is well, why do you think that they lied to you? And uh, they're going to like, go, well, didn't want to get in trouble. And I go, well, they, they feared your reaction. So why is it, would they fear your reaction? So I, that's something that, you know, I think it's really important for all of us to think about that is uh, what, what signals are we sending to our children that would cause them to feel like they couldn't tell us the truth because they were concerned that uh, the reaction would be stronger, or you know, too much for them to handle. Your child should never fear a consequence for telling you the truth. It really is that simple. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on tonight and, uh, and uh, sharing your valuable insight and your information. Uh, to our audience, I know that this was not our normal content, but I hope you find it valuable. Also, to our audience, if you have heartburn or you're okay with my little soapbox sections right there at the end, please send those comments to me privately rather than those being captured <laughs> about the internet to shine lights on the fact of my truth. I broke internet character and security a little bit tonight for this message, but I don't want to advertise the fact to anyone who was seeking information on my family. They will put that out there. Uh, that has been an issue for me in the past, but again, I'm not in the same public life that I am now, though I was then. Uh, you know, again, thank you for your time, audience. We understand that your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.